Hello, I'm Chiranzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world. It's characters, composers, politics, places, popes, kings and queens. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined once again by Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Alan joins me for a very special topic today, Bach's Universe. We're going to examine how a man who died nearly 300 years ago has left such a lasting impact on the world. So wherever you are, sit back, relax, and join Alan and myself, Huronzani, for another fantastic episode of Tales of Baroque as we talk about Bach's Universe. Um, thank you, Alan, for joining me today over Zoom. One of the many fantastic advantages of technology today. Yes, indeed. Um, it feels a little bit strange to be uh, doing it this way. But on the other hand, I can see you on the screen and it's almost like we're sitting opposite each other in the studio as we usually do. Indeed so, it is. Yeah, for an audio program, that's a little bit difficult to get across. But um, normally we do actually have, um, you know, a bit of banter going, going along visually as well. That's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly it's a huge boon to be able to do it this way. Otherwise, I guess, you know, 10 years ago we would have been on the telephone or something. Yeah. This, which <laughs> would not be at all the same thing. No. Now, my plan today is to help our listeners approach Bach in, in the same sort of way that your students do, Alan, uh, at the conservatorium, for this to become almost an interactive lesson on Bach uh, from Music History 2 that I certainly remember with a lot of joy. Without labouring the point uh, too much, obviously this program is called Bach's Universe. Now, not many composers can claim such a fantastic uh, title, I think, when it comes to their music, can they? That, that is a wonderful title and it does capture something special. I must say, when I'm teaching uh, mainstream music history classes to, to our you know, a large group of students. We only really get one week in which we can focus on Bach. But I do have a seminar called J.S. Bach and His World. So it's, it's not quite Bach's universe, but yes, yeah. trying to capture something of the same kind of idea, I suppose, of uh, um, what kind of person he was and the world in which he lived, but also how that has come down to us and uh, how it fits kind of into the much bigger picture of uh, music and human culture, I yeah, guess, of which yes. Bach is such an ex extraordinary re representative. And as you say, extraordinary representative. He is one of the few people, that, rather his music was one of the few things chosen to be sent on the golden record with Voyager 1 and 2 that has now, both, uh, both of these records have left the solar system, Travelling out into the unknown, as it were, quite a, a compliment. Yes, indeed. And yes, who knows what, if any aliens are out there, what they would make of uh, a yeah. golden disc with <laughs> J.S. Bach recorded on it, if they could decipher it. But um, in a sense, of course, what it tells us is more about the uh, time at which that uh, spaceship left Earth mm. uh, and what people thought about Bach at the time mm. as being a kind of a fitting representative of, of human culture yes. to send out into the void um, for, for anybody else on another planet to encounter. Uh, and I guess that is something really significant about the idea of um, there is a kind of contrast between, well, not a contrast, but, but a sort of complementary, I guess we could say, aspects between uh, what we know about who Bach was and what he did in the 18th century uh, and who he is for us now. 
and of course they're not the same thing, mm. but the fact that he is still such an important figure for us today tells us something, I think, about uh, about his place in, in Western music history, certainly, but also uh, his kind of significance in, in um, human culture. Now, there's just one more thing in terms of the universe that I'd like to, to mention because uh, I heard a beautiful analogy about it um, and really wanted to share it with the listeners too. Um, there was a, another fellow podcaster, uh, Evan Shinners, who was talking about Bach's music and in his introduction to um, quite a lengthy a series of podcasts on the art of fugue, he, he talked about Bach's music as being like the universe because to him, you know, it, it, the music of Bach is beautiful from any perspective but with telescopes and other tools you can get into the nitty-gritty and it becomes even more mind-blowing and and uh, you know truly awesome because there is so much underneath the surface not just the the lovely sound of the music music itself but built into the music that um, performers and listeners um, both uh, enjoy yeah, and it is certainly one of the features of, of Bach's music and his way of composing that uh, he came out of a long tradition, uh, particularly in church music, of writing counterpoint. So that's mm. where rather than writing a series of chords, you're writing a series of melodic lines which interact with each other and weave around between each other and between them produce the harmony. In a way, it's a kind of way of thinking of the music horizontally rather than vertically is one way we put it, as, yes. as if you can see the music unfolding across the page rather than being a series of vertical chords one after the other. So when we try and analyse the music and understand how it works, we do often look at the harmonies and see how uh, one chord is moving to the next, but uh, that's being created in most cases in Bach's music by the interweaving of different voices. And uh, so that tells us something out of the, about the tradition out of which he came, uh, but also something that was distinctive about his own way of composing. When when that kind of way of, of creating music started to go out of fashion during his life, uh, he was perfectly capable of writing music that just had a nice tune and, and accompaniment by chords, but it wasn't really what turned him on. You know, he wasn't that interested by that kind of thing. That was okay for the Italian opera composers and so forth. But for his music, he always liked to have some counterpoint in there. And so even when he did an arrangement of somebody else's music, which was more kind of uh, straightforward and melodic, he would add in extra... Uh, extra parts, which created more counterpoint. Yes, uh, just and I think it was partly just the intellectual pleasure it gave him to figure out how to do it. Yes, um, yeah. So he's very, very smart man, and uh, and he just enjoyed the the kind of intellectual game. I think, in a way, of writing this complex music. And perhaps before going further into his um, uh, musical output, maybe you could tell us, Alan, about who Bach was in terms of what we know about his life from a historic point of view, when he was born and, and, and what was his family situation and, and why was it that maybe he was drawn to this, uh, this style of writing in the first place? Yeah. Um, I guess the first thing to say about Bach is that uh, in terms of the, the history and what we know about his life and so forth is that almost all of it comes in a sense at second hand. It comes through administrative records that tell us where he was, how much he was paid, what kind of work he was doing and so forth, but nothing that tells us what he thought about that, what his uh, personal beliefs were and so on. All of those things we have to really deduce from the other evidence. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of scholars who spent a lot of time working on this because because he's such a, a significant figure. And as a result of that, they, they've been able to put together a lot of information and kind of uh, work out from um, 
from the music uh, itself in, in many cases, just from the compositions, you can kind of deduce his approach to the world, his understanding of things and, and his priorities. And there are some wonderful books which do that. Um, the the um, Probably still the great biography of Bach is Christoph Wolf's uh, J.S. Bach, The Learned Musician, which is yes. a wonderful title and, uh, and really sums him up very well. Uh, yes. A learned man who, who is a musician. Um, but then kind of the other side of that that coin is uh, John Elliot Gardner's uh, book, which is not so much a biography in the traditional sense as an insight into Bach through the music. Um, but uh, Elliot Gardner, of course, uh, a, a com- conductor who has made much of his career in uh, conducting Bach's music, and so he comes at it from the point of a view of knowing the pieces intimately, particularly the church cantatas, the sacred music, and uh, deducing from that some things about who Bach was. And so some of the things we can say are that he was a devout Lutheran. Um, he read his Bible regularly and he owned two copies of uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the Bible and went through and marked things in the margins and, and so on, particularly things that had to do with music, um, but uh, also uh, other things that, that uh, seemed to him to be important. Yes. Um, there was a bit of a fashion uh, perhaps 30 years ago to argue that uh, these annotations which had been found in a, in a copy of the Bible and, and these commentaries uh, were really just him coming up with uh, arguments to uh, to debate with the town council who were giving him trouble. He was just, They were his bosses essentially and that he had to endlessly go back and ask for more funding and those sorts of things that musicians are very familiar with still today. And uh, and there was an argument to say that uh, he was just finding passages in the Bible that he could quote back at them to, yeah. <laughs> to justify why they needed more funds for the choir and orchestra. Yes. But uh, the um, interestingly, that, that research came mostly out of East Germany. And, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and I think it was uh, important for, for Bach to be seen as a working man who was uh, struggling yes. against the oppressive bosses. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Sometimes so history is tainted with our own uh, prejudices. That's uh, that's for for sure. Uh, but yeah. but um, also on that point, you you didn't say which town council. Obviously, this was during his time in Leipzig. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So this is kind of the second half of his career in, in Leipzig. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose the main point to say about that, though, in terms of the you know the his, the way we do the history, is that um, history is inevitably our history. You know, it's yes. from our point of view, and so the things that concern us that we find interesting or important when we look at a historical figure are inevitably change from time to time according to our own priorities. Yes. And but even uh, if you in a in a very basic way, if you think of the word history. History. It's the combination of his and story, and uh, and and it really is, you know, uh, like in in French, where you have the word histoire, which means both history as well as a story. Um, it's a word that um, that has a lot more to it than than maybe we 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 tend to think of. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we, in a way, inevitably think of history as being a set of stories because that's the way our human communication and our human culture work. We tell each other stories about things. Um, But uh, how those stories are put together and how they're 
um, they're kind of prioritised about what things are important to tell and what mm. things get left out is also uh, often just as important as what things are put in. So that is one of the things we have to be careful of as music historians too, uh, whose stories don't get told and yes. uh, what things, you know, what aspects are left out when we tell these stories. And so um, while on the one hand we can say J.S. Bach is this wonderful outstanding figure and so forth, it is easy to be seduced a little bit by the narrative of the, the great man with Capital, capital G, G and capital M. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, who, who stands out as this sort of world historical figure who's, who's kind of somehow outside of time and place and just exists as this um, superhuman figure. Or that rather this, the case. this universe... Yes. <laughs> but but That's in right. but it is one mm. of the, 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 the wonderful things about um, studying a musician like Bach is to see how on the one hand he produces these uh, compositions which we experience as being really transcendent, extraordinary things that uh, stand the test of time that have uh, been uh, inspirational to generations of people. Uh, and that seemed to cast him as this exceptional figure. On the other hand, he was an ordinary man doing an ordinary, a relatively ordinary job, uh, which was fairly common at the time. As a church musician, he had to get up at five o'clock in the morning and uh, organise a bunch of schoolboys to get in and rehearse. Um, he had to, to teach school and uh, deal with the administration and all of those practical things. Uh, he had a family to raise. Uh, and he went through all sorts of, of trauma in his life as well. His uh, first wife died while he was away on a trip with his employer um, yes. and got back to find she was already dead and buried, you know, and uh, half of his children died in infancy, you know. So all yes. of those kinds of, of uh, struggles that people had in the 18th century, he was absolutely um, part of that. But I guess that's also got what, what went to, to form him in in many ways. Yeah. And in um, in many musicological accounts of, of Bach's life, as it as it were, serving the purpose of framing maybe some of the music, that event that uh, that event where he had essentially left his first wife um, healthy uh, and then came back to find her not just ill, but dead and buried. Um, there is a particular chacona that is um, that is uh, very uh, well uh, well known um, for the extensive, uh, essentially, uh, nature and, and um, scope of it um, for solo violin that perhaps listeners will remember Annie Gard performed in 2019 as part of the Next Generation program. And, uh, and this chacona is sometimes attributed to being some sort of work in honour of her, her memory. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it, it again shows us um, how, in a way, how little we know in that we, we will never know probably whether the, it, the piece, you know, like the, the chacona is in, was in fact a piece in memoriam to his wife, but it kind of makes sense that it would be. And that's probably... Um, you know, as far as we can go with many of our suppositions about um, the background to particular pieces. Yes. And listeners may recall um, you and I, Alan, actually talking about this ahead of the Next Generation program that was back in 2019 um, where Annie Gard performed this, um, this movement, uh, which you know, to call it a movement is almost an understatement because it's basically as long as the rest of the work, if not longer than the rest of the partita combined, uh, yes, and it uh, quite possibly didn't originally belong to the piece. It uh, may have been kind of um, tacked on afterwards. Uh, and that in itself might say something about the significance of the piece that he needed somewhere to, to kind of place it. Um, 
but uh, it yeah it absolutely does stand on its own as an extraordinarily um, powerful and uh, profound piece of a, a very substantial scale just in this one movement. So let's listen to Annie Gard performing the Chacona from the Partita for Solo Violin in D minor as part of the Next Generation program in 2019. that going on in the background alan maybe you can tell us about this form um what is a partita to start off with it's a uh a term one of a couple of terms the other one is a suite to describe the set of pieces put together um into uh, a group which are based on dance forms and they're usually it's a kind of um, way of organizing music that are uh, came mostly from uh, french music and so they tend to have the the names of French dancers but sometimes they're also given Italian names and in fact Bach uses the Italian names for some of the dance forms. Um, So uh, the Chacon even there that piece is um, originally a dance form in this version it's certainly not something you would actually dance to and it's significantly slowed down probably from what an actual dance Chacon would be Um, but uh, the other movements in the partitas uh, and also the cello suites, which are the kind of matching set for, for solo cello, uh, have the, the names of the, the standard kind of, of dance movements like the Allemand, uh, Courant, Saraband, um, Jig and so forth. So why, Alan, is this uh, collection of uh, partitas um, and sonatas for solo violin by uh, Bach so important? Is, is, is there a reason why this is held up as one of those collections of Bach's that... Um, obviously informs uh, modern uh, musicians today? Yes, it it is. It's not uh, absolutely the first piece of this kind, but it's uh, the first substantial set of uh, pieces composed in this way for violin unaccompanied by any other instrument. So the normal way, as we, I guess, listeners will know, that that for a solo uh, piece for an instrument like the violin or the flute or whatever, was that it would be accompanied by the basso continuo group. So that's uh, typically harpsichord and cello, maybe a lute and and so forth, providing the bass line. But these pieces have no bass line, and it's quite clear that he intended it to be that way. actually says on the cover of the piece for solo violin unaccompanied without a bass yes, <laughs> Just, yes. so let, be, let there be no doubt um, and interesting that 19th century musicians couldn't quite deal with that and felt like that it was really la- 
liking something. So Schumann and other people composed accompaniments for them on the piano, but uh, but that's clearly not what Bach intended. Yes. And and that's what makes him so interesting because he has to figure out a way of making music in the, the way that he normally does, which is with harmony and with counterpoint, with interweaving parts for different, ins- you know, which would normally be played on different instruments, and all of this to be done on a single instrument. Now, on the violin, you can do that up to a point by playing on two strings at once and even occasionally on three or four strings if you kind of go across the top of them all at the bow in one bow stroke. But you can't do that all the time, and he doesn't. Uh, Instead, what he does is to create the melodies often out of uh, arpeggios, so they're broken chords, so that what we're hearing is... Uh, a kind of faked harmony. It gives us the illusion that we're hearing um, harmon- uh, hearing chords and also sometimes hearing interweaving voices in different separate parts, uh, but it's all done on the single instrument. That was Annie Gard performing the Chaclona from the Partita for Solo Violin in D minor, broadcast by the ABC live as part of the Next Generation program in 2019. Now, taking us back then to the question of not just who was Johann Sebastian Bach, but who is Johann Sebastian Bach for for us today, um, because... Um, Unlike probably the vast majority of people that uh, live and die and, and potentially don't leave uh, very many traces besides the genetics um, to history, Bach certainly has left um, a, a legacy, as it were, through his music that is uh, still very much so alive um, today. Hence, um, you know, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, named yeah. after his Brandenburg Concertos collection. Um, mm. So who is Johann Sebastian Bach from a musical perspective, Alan? When you, when, you talk to, when you talk to your students about Bach and you introduce him for the first time, who, who, who is this man? Yeah, who is he for us today? Well, what we're talking about there really is uh, reception, how, um, how people have understood Bach. Uh, and that, of course, has changed a lot in different um, periods. So uh, immediately after his death, uh, his music was not particularly fashionable. Some pieces continued to be played in the church in Leipzig, but otherwise it pretty much went out of circulation entirely because hardly any of it had, of it had been printed. Uh, it circulated in manuscript. And so... Uh, it was quite a, a revelation to even Mozart and, uh, and Beethoven who were introduced to Bach's music and had not seen anything much of it before. Mm. Uh, and they found it quite inspirational. Well, the, um, there's the anecdote of Mozart, um, you know, exclaiming after having discovered essentially this, uh, this motet that he was hearing for the first time, finally something to learn from. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that is, uh, you know, a significant thing, I think, that period around the the end of the 18th century. So Bach dies in 1750. So, you know, 50 years, 40 years later, um, most people didn't have much idea about him at all. Uh, Even quite um, learned musicians would have heard the name but probably didn't know anything much of his actual music. Uh, but um, Mozart comes to it at a time when after a period in the kind of mid-18th century where it had been fashionable for music to be uh, kind of um, simplified and, and we might say clarified, made more transparent in style uh, with a beautiful melody and accompaniment and so forth, but not nearly so much uh, counterpoint of the style that, that Bach liked. 
And I think that was one of the things that Mozart and uh, some other smart composers of his generation took on board, that we can actually put some of that back in. And it's this kind of re-complicating of music that gives us some of the great masterpieces of the late 18th century and into the beginning of the 19th. Mm. Um, But the big thing that happens in 1829 is Mendelssohn uh, does the famous revival of the St Matthew Passion, which had not been heard uh, since the... 1740s Um, and so uh, he thought it was the centenary it wasn't actually but uh, it was about 100 years after uh, it had first been done more or less (laughs) well it was because there was a copy dated in 1729 but actually uh, we think that the first performances uh, of a version of St Matthew Passion were a little bit earlier Uh, but at any rate um, Mendelssohn revives it in 1829 to huge acclaim and it was a really big kind of cultural event when he did this Um, and that kicks off a whole Bach revival through the 19th century so when we start um, getting scholars creating uh, complete works editions, you know, all the compositions of one composer mm. in a, a nice matching set of uh, of carefully edited scores. It's Bach who gets the first outing of that, you know, yes. before Mozart or Beethoven or anybody, it's Bach who gets the complete works edition, um, which took years and years, decades yes. to do, but uh, it signals then how significant he was, he was seen as being. A part of that is also to do with uh, retrospectively his... Um, significance for the history of German music and, and German culture. There was a sense in the late 19th century of, um, of historians going back and saying, well, we've got all these wonderful German musicians in the 19th century. We've got uh, Haydn and Mozart at the end of the 18th and, and Beethoven and Brahms and yes. Wagner and so forth. But what comes before that? How did we get into all of that? And yes, so then they go back start? and... Yeah, and there's yeah. A, a sense of kind of adding Bach onto the beginning of this grand tradition of, of German music. Yes. Um, so and, it's in and that light. That that, that that was what I wanted to ask you about, um, Alan, whether or not this is all just some sort of musicological beat-up in terms of Johann Matheson, who is one of the first people who's actually um, uh, reportedly written about uh, about Bach and, and was very praiseworthy of, of what he had discovered in terms of knowing Bach's, Bach's music. He was of course, was a contemporary of Bach too, um, yeah. but but is it something that's just come from uh, the what has been handed down from a few um, uh, essentially historical um, uh, documents that we have um, talking about his music at the time when it was being performed? Was that convincing enough to sort of weave this story, or or, or why is it that he's actually got this this uh, center stage in terms of being the center of even that sun diagram where all of the other German composers? Uh, listed around his name. Yeah, I think um, it's a kind of combination of things. One of them is that there is this kind of need for an origin story in a way for for the great you know history of, of Western culture and, and of German music in particular through the 19th century. Um, it's partly that there is uh, a sense in the uh, 19th century and into the 20th of valuing complexity in music, <clears throat> that um, music that sounds simpler should not be um, and it's not as challenging, well, that's not intellectually kind of intense enough or artistically heavy enough uh, to really carry weight, I guess we could say, um, culturally. Uh, whereas um, Bach we can go back to and say, well, that's really complicated, serious, difficult music and, mm. and therefore it must be important. Um, 
I did a, a study a little while ago on the first Sydney performance of the St Matthew Passion and there was a lot of talk in the press about it at the time. This was such a big deal to put on a performance of the St Matthew Passion in 1880. Um, so this is, uh, what's that, um, 50 years after uh, Mendelssohn's revival mm-hmm. and it had not been done many times since. There was a series of performances in London in the the 1850s and 60s, but to put it on in Sydney in this colonial outpost was was such a a big deal. But what they talked about in the press leading up to it was how difficult it was. There's this monumental, uh, extraordinarily uh, musically challenging piece to put on and just even to attempt it was, uh, was a huge uh, kind of plus for the colony. Yes. And uh, even though the performance was not too good in the end, uh, they were commended just for having made the attempt, really. Yes. Uh, and that, the fact that that, that uh, was such a big deal um, kind of signifies something about what Bach meant, I think, in that period, that uh, he kind of carried this prestige of being um, a serious historical uh, and very um, intellectually complicated and challenging Composer, mm. and so some of that I think is is what sets the background for Bach's reception through the twentieth century as well. Mm. And He's indeed, this kind of transcendent figure with this very difficult and challenging and and um, highly elevated kind of style. And indeed, to go back to to Mozart, whose letters do survive, and of course we have many many fascinating yes. letters from his hand, um, uh, writing to his sister and and explaining that this, this fugal music is is extremely difficult to hear in one's head. Um, you know, it, it's it's fascinating to think that someone who was so musically advanced as Mozart um, was rediscovering this in in such a novel way, and and perhaps he he and his letters um, did also contribute to um, to this reception that now we we sort of have of, of Bach's legacy. So then, yeah. it, what sort of if if St Matthew's Passion is going to be a point of reference for us, um, Alan? Um, is there a particular recording that you came across during your studies that um, that you you think you find uh, sort of strikes the right uh, note or strikes the right chord, as it were? Well, that's an interesting one because there are so many different ways of doing it. Um, it uh, was done by Mendelssohn with a big amateur choir and a large orchestra with the instrumentation updated to the instruments that they had in the 19th century instead of the 18th century. Um, And so there is a grand tradition of doing it in that way with uh, large uh, choirs. So it'd be done, you know, say by the Sydney Philharmonia choirs or the Melbourne Chorale and and so on. Um, And uh, with a symphony orchestra. And that... um, produces a particular kind of, of way of hearing the music. You know, it really tra- uh, gives you a, a very definite kind of um, sound of the music. So um, to give a sense of the uh, way Bach was starting to be received at the beginning of the 19th century and what kicked off the whole kind of Bach craze, mm. um, I'll read you a bit from uh, Nicholas Forkel's biography of Bach, uh, originally published in 1802, and uh, this English translation of it was by um, Terry from 1920. And indeed, Forkel, just before you go on, Alan, was the first ever uh, to publish a biography on, on, on Bach and his life. That's right, yeah. Um, there was an obituary of Bach published uh, soon after his death on um, which Forkel collaborated with uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, um, Bach's son. Uh, but the first actual biography was this one by Nicholas Forkel from 1802. It's translated by Charles Sanford Terry in 1920. So just a little flavour of the, the way that Bach is starting to be portrayed then, completely different from what he would have 
known in his lifetime. <laughs> so Falkel says, I fain would do justice to the sublime genius of this prince of musicians, German and foreign. I'm convinced that there are no words adequate to express the thoughts Bach's transcendent genius stirs one to utter. No one who is familiar with the work of other centuries will contradict or hold my statement exaggerated that Bach cannot be named except in tones of rapture and even of devout awe by those who have learnt to know him. We may discover and lay bare the secrets of his technique, but his power to inspire into it the breath of genius, the perfection of life and charm that moves us so powerfully, even in his slightest works, must always remain extraordinary and insoluble. It's, it's very, uh, well, I mean, beginning of the 19th century way of expressing it. It's almost like a sermon, you know, it, it really is. He is enraptured, but with, uh, with good cause. He yeah. himself having uh, become fascinated by the man clearly um, and through communication letters that we do have between himself and C.P.E. Bach, um, you know, actually acquired quite a lot of Bach's music uh, too, having borrowed certain uh, scores and manuscripts to be able to learn and study from them and, and put together this biography. Yeah, that's right. So he's yes, he's speaking certainly with knowledge about the music, which uh, very few people had at that time, at the end of the eighteenth century and into the beginning of the nineteenth. Uh, but he's so he's certainly setting um, Bach up, and and in the the introduction to the book, he also describes him in very. Um, uh, powerful terms as being a German national hero, essentially, that yes. he's this great representative of German culture. And so it feeds into the kind of uh, beginnings of romanticism yes. in the beginning of the 19th century and the construction of a German national identity and all of those things. Uh, so all of that kind of lies in the background of the way that we have come to know Bach in the 20th century and into the 21st. Um, so there's this kind of building up of this this fig, almost mythological kind of figure of the, the great uh, man, the genius musician. And so in the, the second half of the 20th century, there's been a certain amount of energy gone into, I guess, um, taking apart that perhaps overblown kind of image of, of who Bach was as is somebody who kind of transcends time and space and all of that stuff, um, who wrote this extraordinary music and yet was also uh, an ordinary person getting on with his life and doing the best that he could. Um, and so how do you hold those things together? Well, I guess that's one of the big questions about anybody who, who achieves remarkable things, that um, somehow they have uh, found the ability to get through the, the challenges that life throws up and uh, throws up and um, getting on with, you know, all the things like raising kids and yeah. teaching in school and all of that stuff and yet producing week in and week out this remarkable music. Yes, because he was an administrator, he was a teacher. These were other commitments that he certainly had to. And how many children did he have, uh, Alan? Uh, a little over 20. Yeah. <laughs> With two wives. Yes, but, but still. Um, that's right. And, and yet um, only 10 of them survived into adulthood or at least past the age of three. So yes. uh, this was just part of the... Uh, the experience of you know living in Europe in the 18th century that uh, child mortality was extraordinarily high, mm. um, and uh, so the the kind of um, that sense that life is transitory and that um, you never know when you're going to, to to die. You know you could get sick, you could have an accident, there could be war. Um, life is very uh, kind of um, precarious and. Um, so uh, that informs, I think, some of the way that uh, a musician like Bach, who's a 
a, a deep thinker as well as a uh, great technician in, in writing his music. Um, I think that that lies in the background of it in, in a way, in that his music is kind of serious and reflective. Um, and in some ways it's kind of abstract and in other ways it absolutely draws us in in a very personal way. Mm. And uh, talking about the St Matthew Passion and, and so to kind of um, bring it up to how we receive it today, you know, as, as one example of some of the best-known music, um, it's it's a great example because it does really tell us a story. You know, it's it's uh, it's words extracted directly out of the Bible, telling the story of Jesus' uh, arrest and crucifixion and and death. Um, so it was music written for Holy Week and leading up to to Good Friday. Um, and because it does have that actual storytelling element to it, and it's um, told in it's vocal music, of course, so we have words that, that tell us what's going on in the story, and that makes it very powerful. Um, and so it can be done in extraordinarily different ways. And so the the way that uh, came out of that nineteenth century tradition, and which was uh, really standard up until at least the the mid twentieth century, was to do it as a very grand story with a grand large orchestra and a grand large choir, and a grand slow tempos mm. so uh, there is um, one of the, the kind of famous recordings is uh, Karl Richter's recording with the uh, Munich Bach Choir and Orchestra There's, uh, you can find it on YouTube uh, recorded I think in 1971 and uh, the opening chorus goes from memory for 11 minutes I think um, and uh, it's in 6-8 time so that's um, two, two groups of three in the bar Ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, bum. One, two, three, four, five, six. But he conducts it so that every one of those little notes is a beat, right? So it's palm, two, three, four, five, six. And it makes it very impressive, very grand. Um, but uh, it also extends the piece out to about uh, double the length that some of modern recordings. <laughs> yes, <are>. indeed. <laughs> Being familiar with that recording, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and I think uh, no one would, um, uh, would hold it against Richter for having, I think, taken that, uh, that approach, as it were. But certain things are just not uh, historically informed as they, as they d- talk about these days. You know, and, yeah, and whether, right. yes, Tempe are one of those uh, real sticking points when it comes to historically informed performance because we don't have recordings of how certain dances and at what speed certain movements would have been played. That's right, yeah. So in a lot of the pieces we're going to hear on this program, they are um, uh, sometimes labelled as, as dance movements uh, and things like the, the suites and partitas, they're, they're all... Um, all the movements are named after French dancers because they actually are French dancers in the sense not that you would dance to them, but they're using the forms and the rhythms and the patterns and so forth that come from dancers. And so if we know what the choreography was for the dancers, uh, then that gives us a pretty good idea of how fast or slow the music needed to go. If you play it too slow, the dancers are going to fall over. And if you play it too fast, they just can't get through the steps. Um, So uh, that kind of thing is really useful to us in working out the speeds. Mm. Um, and there are also people at the time, in particularly in the mid-18th century, when we get the period of the, the Age of Enlightenment and they're starting to, to try to codify things. There's the great, uh, the great enterprise of the Encyclopedia, the first great encyclopedia done by Diderot and his, his contemporaries in France, tried, in a sense, to capture all human knowledge, or at least uh, as, as far as they 
had access to it in one place. And uh, so there are all sorts of things that are, are being codified in this period and written down. And so people, musicians, set out to do things like, well, how can I actually record um, the relative speed of different kinds of music and so they created tables that had um you know lento means really slow and adagio is almost as slow and dante is a bit faster and then uh, um you know allegro is really fast and so forth yes, yeah. and they put them in order of speed for example you know from slowest to fastest and interestingly they didn't all agree you know for some of them adagio was slower than lento for some it was faster and uh, likewise is, is presto faster than allegro molto and and so on yeah um you can <laughs> so people obviously at the time were arguing about this kind of thing as well so that gives us some ideas but yeah it doesn't tell us actually how fast or slow it was yes. the other side of that question is you know we're we have the last 50 years, I guess, really been focused a lot on historical performance and that's why we have orchestras like the Brandenburg Orchestra who are trying to play the music more or less as well as we can tell the way it was done when it was new um, on the kinds of instruments that they used and using the sorts of performing practices. So things like trying to get the speed, the sort of speed they would have played when the music was new. Mm. But somebody like Karl Richter... Um, was in fact historically informed in the sense that he did know a lot about the history. He'd studied it carefully and thought about it and so forth. But for, for somebody like him and to some musicians today, the answer is not we should try and do it the way they did it when it was new, but we should do it in a way that speaks to our modern audience. Um, and what we always say in talking about historical performance and um, you know historically informed ways of approaching things is um, we do our very best to try and reproduce the kinds of sounds that we think were made at the time. Uh, but the one thing that we can't reproduce is the ears with which to hear them. Yes. Right? <laughs> we, or, or we should say the brains, but um, yes, you yeah. know what I mean. That uh, the 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 um, background with which we come to listening to the music can never reproduce the way that people heard it when the music was new. Uh, they were people, the, the musicians playing the music were people who played this kind of music all the time. They didn't play any other music because that's just what music was. Mm. And likewise, the people listening to it were hearing this kind of music all the time. They may have known a little bit of, of past music. In Catholic countries, they probably knew a bit of Palestrina if they were, you know, went to, to the great um, uh, cathedrals and so forth. Uh, but for the most part, the music the people heard was all modern music as it was at the time. Yes. Whereas, yeah. of course, our ears are full of not only Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and so forth, but the Beatles and hip-hop and yeah. jazz <laughs> and all of those other things, yeah. which we can't unhear, you yes. know. And so we bring all of that to the way that we listen. And therefore, Bach means necessarily something different for us than and what it meant to his original hearers. So, Alan, after listening to so many uh, recordings of St. Matthew's Passion, is there one in particular that strikes that balance between essentially accommodating the modern listener and then also being um, historically informed, as it were? Yeah, one of my favourite ones is uh, with John Butt and the Dunedin Consort, who do it with the kinds of forces that Bach probably had and do, I think, a pretty good job of trying to recreate the kind of sound that... Uh, that he might have expected to hear and that he would have created with his own um, choir and orchestra at St Thomas's in Leipzig. 
Uh, so to kind of give us a sense of how different the uh, ways of performing Bach have been over the last 100 years or so, so or even the last 50 years, um, it's interesting to start with a recording, uh, that recording by Karl Richter with the Munich Bach Choir and Orchestra from 1971. This is a very famous recording and really a wonderful, profound recording in many ways, and yet it represents a very um, mid-20th century view of that um, serious, profound, uh, grand old Bach. Um, so I'll just play you a little bit of the opening. Let's listen to a little bit of the opening of this and you can get a sense of uh, the feel of this music played with a big orchestra at a very slow tempo. Listeners obviously can't uh, can't see the video, so it's well worth going and, and taking a look at the YouTube video because the sheer number of people involved in this recording is quite awesome, really. Yeah, I did have a go once at estimating how many singers there were in the choir, um, looking just by looking at the video, and I think it's in the order of a hundred or, or a bit more, because there are actually three choirs. There's uh, the, there are two. Uh, kind of uh, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, um, adult choirs, and then there's also a chorus of uh, boy sopranos who sing uh, in that that particular movement, who sing a chorale melody that weaves through the middle of the music. It's one of the things that makes it so grand. But that's and then a great big symphony orchestra as well. You can hear the kind of depth and grandeur of that yes. sound. As opposed to your um, personal favourite, here I'm going to play for audiences the um, the John Butt uh, recording with the Dunedin consort, and um, obviously for very different forces. So here's John Butt and the Dunedin consort in performance of St Matthew's Passion in 2008. <laughs>
Now, Alan, I'll leave that going on in the in the background. It is vastly different to the first recording we heard. Yeah, it is almost literally double the speed as the most obvious thing. It's also played at a slightly lower pitch, which is uh, typical because that's the sort of pitch at which we think um, Bach's organ was tuned and therefore the music was played in Leipzig at the time. Uh, but the feel of the whole thing is completely different, of course. Um, and that's partly the speed, but also the performing forces. And uh, I wonder what uh, listeners thought, you know, hearing that in comparison to the other one. Obviously, there are a lot less and it becomes most obvious when the singers come in. Um, striking that on the, the Karl Richter recording, um, the instrumental introduction takes two full minutes. Uh, on the John Butt recording, it takes one minute. <laughs> and then the singers come in and instead of this enormous course of a uh, hundred odd people, we have one person on each part. It's a quartet, essentially, not a great big choir, but that's probably what Bach actually had at the time and what he was imagining as he composed it. So, uh, again, it's um, open to us to think of it in different ways, to hear it in different ways, but that is probably closer to what Bach actually expected to hear when he wrote the music down. And indeed, when we hear the parts with a reduced uh, size and, and a reduced number of singers as well, we hear a lot more of the uh, interweaving between the parts. There's a lot more clarity within the recording itself. There isn't, of course, that same depth and, um, and tension that's, uh, that's there in the Richter recording, but, um, but obviously the music is, is actually much more audible, I, I, I think. You can really hear a lot more of what's going on. That's right, yeah, and I like that, that way of putting it. You can hear what's going on because the texture is very kind of transparent. You can hear all of the parts and what they're doing. And so in a way, it, um, it just tells us, it says to us something different about the meaning of the music. Um, and the different kinds of meanings can each be valid ones, but they're significantly different ones. For me, I hear in the, um, the Richter, the, the great the, so the, the words of the chorus are about the the daughters of Zion the uh, kind of dragging themselves laboriously up the hill of Golgotha towards where Jesus is is being crucified um, and uh, it's it's a, a kind of terrible dragging weight that they're carrying as they walk at this very slow speed um, Whereas in the butt recording, we hear a whole lot of other things going on. It's almost dance-like, um, and uh, some of the, 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 the textural clarity allows us to hear, for example, the chorale melody, which is also telling us a different story. Um, and so uh, the interplay between the, the meanings that we can take from the piece is quite significantly different in these different versions of it. I'd like to, to mention one other example. It's one of my favourites of While We're on St Matthew Passion from a, a different movement which also tells us something kind of, to me, kind of profound about um, the different ways we can hear Bach today, which would have been completely unfamiliar to him at the time. Now, there are uh, several um, famous recordings of the St Matthew Passion done as a staged performance or semi-staged performance. Um, so there was... Uh, a famous one by Jonathan Miller in 1994, which was filmed, and you can see bits of it on, on YouTube. Um, there was a semi-staged version by uh, Sir Simon Rattle with the Berlin Philharmonic, again, in a big orchestra and so forth, but uh, done in quite a sensitive style. There's a ballet version of 
the St. Matthew Passion by John Neumeyer, uh, and the list goes on. So people have mm. tried all sorts of different ways of interpreting it. But one of the ones that for me is most profound is of the Aria Albamadich, Have Mercy, O God, um, which is one of the most moving ones. It has a wonderful violin solo in it accompanying the um, mezzo-soprano voice. Here is a um, what we would think of as a, a contemporary, historically informed performance of it. Uh, this is the choir and orchestra of Collegium Vocale Ghent, directed by Philip Herrefiger, uh, with the alto Damien Guillon, who is a um, countertenor. Isn't that an amazingly moving and powerful 
piece. Oh, uh, it is. It's such, uh, as you said, incredible music that does speak directly to the soul, as it were, and and hence probably the um, the mystique around uh, Bach. What sort of man he may have been? Um, how how do you create this sort of feelings, uh, this this emotion with just you know obviously a violin and a, and a and a single soloist, a, a, an alto soloist. It is quite remarkable, and of course a lot of it has to do with the way that he organises the harmony and so forth, so that it brings us to points of tension and release and, and all of those things. So that's his kind of craft as a musician that creates that, and yet there is something uh, quite remarkable about having the vision to to be able to, to say, this is what I want to say in the music and to be able to put it together in, in a way such that it was not only surely enormously moving to people at the time but continues to be enormously moving to us now. Um, so that way of performing it is what we would expect to hear in most uh, modern performances these days done in a historically informed way with um, period instruments and so forth in the way that the Brandenburg Orchestra plays. But I was fascinated to come across recently, in fact it was um, I was introduced to this at a conference about Bach uh, a few years ago. There's a, a recording um, just within the last 10 years or so, I'm sorry I don't have the exact date of it, of the same piece on an album of uh, Bach arias recorded by a group called Saarband who uh, are not playing on entirely traditional instruments. They have a mixture of instruments um, and uh, they uh, perform this in a style which is, well, I'll let listeners see what they think first of all of, of the style in which this is performed and I'll give you a hint. It's uh, not sung in German as was the original language or in English but in Arabic. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
That's the same piece. Yes. <laughs> the notes are all by Bach. Yes. And yet the sound of it is completely different. Yeah. And surely the meaning in some ways completely different. The performers there are um, Fadia El Haj, a um, Lebanese mezzo-soprano um, with Ensemble Saban directed by Vladimir Ivanov. And you can hear in the way that they perform it, uh, it's ornamented and yet Bach's music is ornamented and they're all essentially the same ornaments but just performed in a different way mm. and that inflection of the sliding on the violin from one note to the next in, and of course that's the Arabic style of playing uh, and the way of singing it um, and uh, Fadi El-Hajj is a, a western trained um, opera singer but she also understands the uh, Arabic style of singing and so that combination of performing the way of performing it along with singing it of course in Arabic and when you just hear the the words the opening words are um, have mercy on me O God and when you hear the word Allah the, the Arabic word for God in there suddenly the meaning of the whole thing is for me quite different and mm. uh, when I first heard it I found myself torn between and there was part of me saying how can they do that to Bach you know that's not what it's supposed to sound like and I'm sure some listeners will have that kind of feeling but then there was another part of me that thought that is so profound it tells us something completely different about this music and the music tells us something different about the world and of course that's quite deliberate they on the uh, album notes to this recording they say uh, their explanation is Saban confronts, and I'm quoting here, Saban confronts Bach's works with the current catastrophic situation in Jesus' home, the Near East, but also with the conflicts between the Arab world and the West, the tensions between believers and those of other faiths, modern and traditional. And indeed, um, taking something that is so now uh, deep-rooted, as it were, in Western, uh, not just music history tradition, but in Western history, and um, and turning it on its head in, in, in this way, uh, will, as you said, Alan, have an immediate sort of reaction, whether positive or, or negative for many people. Um, but it is uh, a brilliant way to, to investigate Bach's work further. And I think it, it is a testament to the material itself, because not many composers come up with material that is so solid and, and robust that it can undergo this sort of transformation and be and be you know essentially viewed from so many different positions and points of view and, and stylistic uh, interpretations and yet still be just as brilliant each time. Yeah, that I, I agree, Hugh. I think that's absolutely the case. There are some some music that. Um, if it's done really well, is fantastic. But if it's not done so well, it kind of falls flat. Um, but uh, most of Bach's music, um, it, if, if it's done well, but in a, a whole variety of different kinds of ways, I guess. If you play all the right notes in the right order, uh, it it will sound pretty good. If you play them really well at the right time and in the right order, then it's absolutely astonishing. Yes, yeah. and uh, but it can yeah it can mean so many different things for different people. Now, when you've presented us with this sort of conundrum, Alan, of the universality and, and the sort of flexibility of Bach's music itself, in trying to tell us a little bit about um, who Bach is uh, for, for modern audiences, essentially, uh, and consumers of music today, um, you've really opened up another can of worms in, in, in the sense that, for me... Um, Am I listening to the right sort of Bach when I come to a Brandenburg 
concert now? What sort of bark am I going to hear when I come to a concert and essentially um, uh, watch the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra performing in a program like the one that's coming up, Bach's Universe? Yeah, so the kind of performance that we'll get with the Brandenburg Orchestra, well, I'm waiting to see, of course, exactly what um, Paul is going to do with each of these pieces. But what we generally expect from uh, a a historically informed um, orchestra playing on period instruments like the Brandenburg II is that they will be doing um, a performance more of the kind that we heard from, say, John Butt and the Dunedin Consort before, where we're trying to get as much as we can to the kind of sound that people would have heard when the, the music was new. So we're using, as best we can work out, the kinds of performing practices that were current at the time. And there is something very powerful about that too, because uh, as we heard with the the butt performance of the opening movement of the St. Matthew Passion, there is a transparency in the sound, there's a clarity, and there's also a kind of earthiness to the sound of the uh, gut strings, for example, on the, the violins and, and cellos and so forth, um, and also the woodiness of the woodwind instruments. The, the flute, for example, that we'll hear in the flute solos in this program sounds really completely different from the modern silver flute. And uh, that makes, uh, you know, the differences in the instrument make some of those pieces a lot harder to play on the historic instrument than they are on a modern one, which has uh, all sorts of technological wizardry on it, basically, a, a whole lot of fancy key work, which allows you to play all of the notes virtually as easily as each other and with exactly the same even sound through the whole instrument. The rock flute doesn't work that way, um, and that makes it in some respects more challenging to play but it also gives it a really interesting varied sound you can hear the change of of color from one note to the next um, so there's always something going on to listen to in a performance on on period instruments to to my ear Alan, thank you very much for your time today. It's been fascinating hearing some of these very uh, diverse interpretations of Bach's music. And uh, I didn't want to leave audiences without a little something at the end of the, this program. And so I've prepared the recording from the Bach Eternal program in 2012 with Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra of the air from the orchestral suite number three that is indeed um, going to finish out the program um, for Bach's universe. Thanks very much, Hugh. That's a wonderful way to finish and it's been a lot of fun. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. 